Do please sit down. Thank you for reading so well. I spent some time in Israel back in 1980 and 81. Sadly, at the time, I had little or no Christian faith or even interest in the Christian faith. But I did get to travel around and see many of the places mentioned in the Bible. And part of those travels involved taking the road from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And it's a long, hard climb. Jericho is the lowest city on earth at about 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem, which isn't more than about 12 or 13 miles away from Jericho, is at 3,000 feet above sea level. And so in just those short 12 miles, the road climbs higher than Ben Nevis, if you like, to give you some perspective. And it's at that point, I have to admit to you, that I made the journey in the relative comfort of the seat of a minibus, albeit non-air-conditioned and crammed full of people. But with a little imagination, one can understand something of what it was like for the people in Jesus' time going up to Jerusalem. This was the main road from the whole of the north of Israel into Jerusalem. The road goes through hot, dry desert. It's really, really dusty. And it goes all the way upwards to the top of the Mount of Olives, where at last you get green vegetation. And at the same time, you see this incredible view of the city of Jerusalem for the first time as you look across the valley to what in those days would have been the temple itself. Today, ironically, you see the Golden Dome of the Rock, one of the holy places of Islam, which stands out most dramatically today. Nonetheless, as you come over the top of the hill, there's a great sense of exhilaration and excitement because Jerusalem comes into view. And for travellers in Jesus' day who didn't have minibuses, that sight must have been the most welcome, the most spectacular, the most awesome moment after that long climb up from Jericho. And this is the route that Jesus took when he entered Jerusalem. Now add to the fact that at that time it was also approaching the feast of the Passover. The road, the the path up to Jerusalem would have been packed with Jewish pilgrims coming from Galilee, all on the way to the great city where God himself had placed his name and even his presence in the temple. The place where through the daily sacrifices, God assured his people of his forgiveness and his love and his fellowship and of hope for the future. They were coming to celebrate the great Jewish stories of the Exodus, the stories of freedom and hope. And they would meet relatives and friends. There'd be lots of singing and dancing and prayer and feasting. And in this particular year that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, there was a group of followers whose expectations could not have been higher. For them, this wasn't just Passover week. This was Kingdom week. For them, it was the time that had been long promised when God's sovereign and saving presence would be revealed in a whole new way. 
By this time in Jesus' ministry, his disciples have come to believe that Jesus is the true and rightful king, the Messiah. Peter had said, you are the Christ, which means the anointed one, the king. And Jesus decides to ride into Jerusalem, and so he commandeers a donkey. The prophecy from the prophet Zechariah would not have been lost on the Jewish pilgrims. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says this, See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. This was a very big provocative statement about what he was doing. This is Jesus the king. And the response of the crowd demonstrates their understanding because you don't spread your coat on the dusty stony ground of the Middle East just for a friend or even for a rabbi. It's a sign that royalty is coming by. And you don't cut down and wave branches. It's the sign of a king. And the crowd shouts, Hosanna, just as we were processing around the church. And according to the biblical scholar Tom Wright, Hosanna is a word, it's it's a Hebrew word, which mixes exuberant praise to God with a prayer that God is going to save his people imminently, right now. And so it was a very provocative thing to be shouting. It was a dangerous expression in the hotbed of first century Roman-occupied Israel. Jesus is the new king. He's the anointed one. And the expectations and the stakes could not have been higher. And even though Jesus had told his disciples time and again over the previous weeks and months that he must be handed over to the authorities and be killed, at this point, that's gone out of their minds. They surely believe that the whole of Jerusalem will get behind Jesus and that within a few days he will be sitting on the seat of power. That's what they expected. That's what they hoped. I can guarantee that's how they were praying that day. God, make it happen the way we want it to. I'm sure that was their prayer. And we're just the same, aren't we, with our hopes and our expectations. Lord, please would you do this thing which I think would be so wonderful. And when our prayers are answered in the way we want them to be, it's great. We're on cloud nine, understandably, thanking God and praising him. I wonder how many people in Reading who rarely, if ever, pray are praying now for their team to make the premiership again this year. We're in or close to the promotion zone. Lord, please would you make it be Reading's year this year. It's even worse when the country gets round to the World Cup, isn't it? The expectations put on the England team are so high. England hasn't won the World Cup for 46 years and yet every year we act as if they're red-hot favourites. Lord, please would you let them win this time. We want God to do it our way, don't we? We have plans and dreams and we want him to bless them. That's why our passion reading this morning is so important on Palm Sunday. I don't know how let down you feel when a prayer is not answered or worse still, when the situation you're praying for appears to spiral downwards in ways you never even imagined. It's hard. We had a wonderful friend at our last church, Greyfriars, 
called Mark Authorson. He had a lovely wife, three gorgeous children, and he had begun training for the ordained ministry at Cambridge. But he contracted leukemia for the second time in his life. And having miraculously survived a first bout, he became seriously ill again and needed a bone marrow transplant. And I have never known so much prayer go into one person in a church. I can't remember how many times the whole congregation stood united in prayer in the middle of the church as he wavered between critical and stable and recovering and back to critical. Hundreds of people were crying out to God for his life. And it was inconceivable to many of us that he would not pull through. But he died. And we were all completely stunned. Our hopes and our dreams for Mark and Sally and the children were dashed. We were numb. And I think if you multiply that many, many times, then that's what Jesus' disciples must have felt like as it moved from Palm Sunday to Good Friday to, to the crucifixion. I don't know if you noticed in that dramatic reading how totally their hopes were dashed and and how totally Jesus was rejected. Pilate, the Roman governor, even though he knew Jesus to be innocent of any crime, in the end, condemned him. The religious leaders, the priests, the people, yeah, the people like me, were mocking him as he was crucified. The bystanders jeered at his inability to save themselves. The crowds who had, a few days before, as he entered Jerusalem, cheered him, now called for his blood. And although we didn't hear it in this morning's reading, even one of his closest disciples, Peter, would deny knowing him multiple times. But worse still was the cry that went out from Jesus' lips on the cross as he not only suffered the terrible physical agony of crucifixion, but found himself totally cut off from his heavenly father as he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine his disciples heard that cry? That's why it's written down in the Gospels. That's why we know he said it. They heard their Lord and Master, who had communed so closely with God for the three years that they'd spent with him, in virtually his last breath, cry out that even God had abandoned him. It was all over. The expectations shattered. The hopes dashed. When I was exploring Christianity on an Alpha course 12 years ago, one of the key reasons that I was so convinced about the resurrection accounts in the Gospels was that I could not, however hard I tried, I could not understand how a group of so utterly defeated, demoralized, hopeless, leaderless people, even to the point of being prepared to die for it, could have found the resources and the vision to start a movement like the early church. It just didn't make any sense at all. It was far easier to believe in the good news that Jesus had risen from the dead, and consequently, I put my faith in him. At the time, the disciples thought it was all over. God had not only not answered their prayers, he had allowed the worst possible thing to happen. But they hadn't listened. They didn't understand what God was up to. 
even though Jesus told them he would die, even though Jesus had in the upper room at the Last Supper taken off his clothes, wrapped a towel round himself, knelt down in front of them and washed their feet like a lowly servant to demonstrate the kind of king that he would be, they had misunderstood what God was up to. I wonder how many times you and I misunderstand what God is up to in our lives. How many times have we either blamed God for a bad situation, either directly or indirectly for his apparent absence, when we have no idea what he's doing? About 25 of us watched the film The Hiding Place the other night. It's crammed into the vicarage sitting room. And it was, it was quite a long film, actually. But what was amazing was Betsy Ten Boom's incredible faith in the worst possible circumstances. The two sisters had been allotted a particular hut in Ravensbrück concentration camp towards the end of the Second World War. And the whole hut was crawling with lice. It was absolutely disgusting. And her sister Corrie was horrified. But Betsy says, God must have put us here for a reason. And she even gives thanks to God for the lice. And in that hut, over the weeks and months to come, they hold services and Bible classes each night under cover of dark. And many of the women there find hope and faith in the gospel, even in the worst nightmarish situation. And it's only later on that they discover that the reason that they were able to run such a ministry was that the guards never came into the hut precisely because of the lice. And as Betsy slowly gets weaker as she's dying, she tells her sister Corrie that she must take the message out of the horror of the concentration camp to tell the world that even in the darkest places, the light of the gospel brings light and hope and new life. The story of Betsy and Corrie has inspired millions of people over the last 40 years, bringing thousands to faith in Jesus Christ and inspiring countless people to forgive one another just as Betsy and Corrie found God's love demonstrated on the cross of Jerusalem enabled them to forgive their persecutors in Ravensbrück concentration camp. The great Easter story, the triumphal entry of Jesus the King, followed by the utter catastrophe, apparent catastrophe of the cross, is vindicated on Easter day when Jesus is raised from the dead. And so faith is believing that God knows what he's doing, even when our own expectations and our hopes are dashed. That's why the death of my friend Mark Authorson, although desperately tragic, has not killed my faith. In this life, I will never know why he died. But because Jesus rose from the dead on that first Easter day, we know that so will we, and that one day, sooner or later, we will rejoice with Mark and Corrie and Betsy and all those who have gone before in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven and the new earth. So the, tri- the triumphal entry, it turns out, wasn't trumped by Jesus' death. It was in fact crowned by his victory on the cross and in his resurrection on Easter day. Amen.